Five. Five. Four. Four. Three. Three. Two. Two. One. One. That was amazing. <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, Matt. The internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co hosts, Dr. Paul Williams and Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi, this is Stuart, here to help you on your journey through the uh, nice uh, land of irritable, irritable bowel syndrome. Thank you, Stuart. That's You're very <laughs> that's very nice of you. <laughs> Paul? Oof. Yeah, yeah, it's hi, this is Paul. <laughs> Paul is alarmed as always. Uh, <laughs> we are we are excited to bring you this episode on irritable bowel syndrome. IBS is a common, very common problem in primary care and something that uh, I'm sure has been difficult for many of you to treat. So we thought we would get an expert to talk to us about this. Dr. Brooks D. Cash is the chair of the Digestive Health Center and professor of medicine at the University of Southern Alabama in Mobile, Alabama, where he has held a faculty position since 2013. He serves as, a, as the director of the Gastrointestinal Motility and Physiology Service at University of Southern Alabama, abbreviated USA. And uh, prior to his relocation to USA, Dr. Cash served in the United States Navy for 24 years, retiring in 2013 as the Deputy Commander for Medicine at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center at the rank of Captain. He is also a Professor of Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Cash has served on the Rome Committee for Functional Gastrointestinal Disorders and has authored over 150 articles and book chapters on a wide variety of GI topics to include IBS, chronic constipation, opioid-induced constipation, colorectal cancer screening, CT colonography, and uh, many others. He serves as an associate editor for the American Journal of Gastroenterology, an editorial board member and reviewer for multiple internal medicine and gastroenterology medical journals, and is a sought-after presenter at national and international medical education meetings. Therefore, he is yet another exceedingly qualified person to talk to us, and on this episode... That's right, more qualified than you. <laughs> he is exceedingly qualified to be talking with us about irritable bowel syndrome. <laughs> Please, please enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is Dr. Matthew Watto here with co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham and Dr. Paul Williams. How are you doing? Hey, how are you, Matt? I'm doing fantastic, and I am proud to introduce our guest tonight, Dr. Brooks Cash from the American College of Gastroenterology and also University of Southern Alabama. Hi, Dr. Cash. Hi, how are you? Doing very well. Thank you for coming on the show. We're very excited to talk to you about IBS. Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm just excited to talk to someone whose name is Brooks DeCash. <laughs> it is a good name, sir. Did you change that name, or is that been I your... did not. I, that, is, that is my given name, and uh, I get a lot, of, a lot of compliments on it. And everybody says <laughs> I ought to be a country singer, but until you hear me sing, you realize that's not true. <laughs> Before we uh, before we start talking about IBS, we we generally we generally like to just ask you some softball questions, uh, just to get things going. So when you're at a cocktail party, how do you answer the question when someone asks you, "What do you do?" 
Well, with age and uh, being married to a, a very nice, genteel lady, I've toned it down over the years. So I pretty much just say I take care of people with digestive diseases and digestive disorders. But I used to be a lot more graphic. Actually, <laughs> you're the perfect person to ask this question to. So I'm a huge fan of Seinfeld. The proctologist episode, that's not really a thing. Like, what is that? Are they referring to a colorectal surgeon or a gastroenterologist? What's your take? That is a colorectal surgeon, and I actually have a, uh, a, a team that I was deployed with actually gave me a little uh, license plate with uh, the the name that they gave that guy. I won't <laughs> oh, that's it. spectacular. It's a family show, so <laughs> I have that in my office. That's awesome. Wonderful. I'm kind of regretting not going into gastroenterology at this point. <laughs> um, it's a great specialty. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's the name they use. Okay. All right, Stuart, <laughs> apparently not a fan of Seinfeld. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> sir, what is a book that you think every physician should read? Uh, I think On Being a Doctor is a great book, and I think uh, every physician should read it or even every medical student. I think it gives a lot of great perspective on, on what we do and why we do it. All right. You got another one that I've read that Matt hasn't? Stuart's, Stuart gloats every time a guest mentions a book that I haven't read. <laughs> I actually got that one from medical school. <laughs> I guess I should be complimented that you think I read a lot of books because I... <laughs> the, okay. Just Game of Thrones, huh? Yeah. Sir, so what is, a, what is a medical app that you really like? Something like an Hippocrates. Yeah, I, I have two that I go to frequently, and I used to not be such a fan, but I do like UpToDate, and uh, I also use my Terrascon Pharmacopeia a lot. And it's something I used in training, and uh, now I use the app a lot. It's right next to the hammer and chisel. <laughs> That's right. I didn't know. I, I haven't used that as an app. I usually, I guess, Hippocrates. Is it? Have you used Hippocrates? Do you think it's better? I like it a little bit better. It's probably just because it's a habit, and it's what we used back then. We didn't have apps when I was uh, right. when I was training back in the dark <laughs> days. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what are you doing outside of medicine? What are you doing to kind of promote your, your own wellness? Well, I am. Uh, I live on a golf course. I live on the fifth hole of a golf course, so I go out and play the par three frequently. Uh, I am trying to learn golf. I'm not very good. Uh, I like to exercise and uh, run, bike, and I have a couple of 16-year-olds. They keep me pretty active as well. And I smoke a lot of brisket. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That is actually very hard to do. I hear smoking's bad for you. <laughs> That's right. It's all filtered. How? <laughs> uh, yeah, the brisket uh, cooking brisket is not as easy as it looks. Definitely very, definitely a, a skill to develop. Ooh, I'll have to bring you some. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Just maybe one or two more questions here. Ask number seven. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one more, and then we'll get to that. Uh, so what is some of the best advice you've ever received as a learner or as a teacher? Uh, well, as a, as a learner, uh, I think the best advice was to minimize my distractions. Uh, as a teacher, uh, I think the best advice I ever got was, was speak to the learner's needs. You know, know, who you're, know who you're teaching and speak to their needs. Don't speak over them. Don't speak below them. But uh, just take time to assess what they know, what they need to know. I think those have really uh, helped me in my teaching career and also my learning career. Tell us one thing about yourself that we will never forget. Now, this is a, this is a tough one. I, you know, I, I'm struggling with this one, but uh, yeah, I guess uh, 
one of the more interesting facts was that I actually have, uh, in my career, been able to spend the night at uh, Camp David. And I tell you any more, I'm going to have to hurt you. So uh, we'll leave it at that. Mm, that's pretty cool. That that question actually, uh, do you do you happen to know General David Young? He was the base commander down at Lackland, probably around the time you were at Walter Reed. Still, no, I don't know David. Okay. Anyway, that was that was one of the uh, interview questions. He said he he interviews medical, uh, not medical students. He interviews undergrads for his alma mater, and he always he asked them that question as the last one, and he said he always gets some very interesting responses. Yeah, I didn't have that. I was going to say I was a rabbit. Orioles fan or, uh, you know, but I was the last chief of medicine at the army hospital as a Navy guy, but that was, you know, I think that was probably the more interesting of my career highlights was spending the night there and yeah, that's, doing some stuff there. That was yeah. pretty cool. I, they, think, I think you picked a good one. As long as they don't arrest you after that, you're fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think at this point we should move on to the IBS questions. Cause I, I do want to be respectful of your time and, um, we'll try to, we'll try to get through these, and uh, this is just a topic. The reason we wanted to go over IBS or the reason that I wanted to go over IBS, it's one of those conditions where patients come into the clinic, a lot of the times they can make you feel kind of helpless when you're seeing them if they have IBS because it can be a little bit difficult to to manage. Absolutely. No, I, I uh, can tell you, I remember being uh, an internist before my GI fellowship and, and not understanding IBS and feeling helpless and very frustrated. Uh, especially when I would send them to the gastroenterologist and they would uh, send a little nasty note back saying, you know, I can't believe you don't recognize this as IBS, you manage it. <laughs> so I, I think just getting down to the basics, how do you diagnose IBS? Do you use the Rome 3 criteria or is there a simpler way to do it as as a general practitioner? Well, I, I do use the Rome criteria and actually the Rome 3 have now been supplanted by the Rome 4 criteria. So that's late-breaking uh, news for your audience. The Rome 4 criteria is basically a very subtle update of Rome 3, and they were released in May of 2016. And the major difference between the two criteria, there's, there's some very subtle differences, but the major difference is they've removed the word discomfort. But everything else is essentially the same. And I do use the Rome criteria not necessarily in the exact verbiage of those criteria, but as I'm just discussing things with the patient, I kind of tick off the main three criteria, which is, you know, to establish abdominal pain that's got an association with either a change in the form of the stool or a change in the frequency of the stool or is relieved or eased with defecation. And, you know, according to the Rome criteria, people need to meet at least two of those criteria. Now, not everybody does, and you'll still end up giving them a diagnosis of IBS. Some people meet all three. Some people have you know, an additional couple that you weren't really prepared for. Um, but there are lots of other symptoms that go along with irritable bowel syndrome. But I find that uh, using those criteria, which have been uh, validated, some of the previous versions of, of the Rome criteria have been validated for clinical use. Uh, I find that to be very helpful. And that's what I teach my trainees as well. Just reading the review articles um, and just trying to sort of study up in advance of this episode, it's, it's kind of funny. They all sort of say that you can sort of confidently make the diagnosis uh, in the absence of alarm features. And I, I don't think I've ever made a, a diagnosis of anything confidently. Um, but in terms of – and so and so you don't necessarily need to treat it as a diagnosis of exclusion, but I feel like we often do. And I know that some guidelines – I think the UK guidelines suggest sort of some rudimentary lab work to actually sort of make the diagnosis. And I was just sort of wondering what your – other than sort of the symptomatic – um, 
uh, other than the interview itself, are there any lab work or anything else as part of the workup that you do for it? No, that's a great question. This is actually where I've done most of my research in IBS is, you know, really evaluating how we diagnose it. What's the, is there a single best way to diagnose it? And I think you really hit on a, a great point in that most clinicians, not only primary care providers, but uh, also specialists and even the Rome committee in their criteria, the most recent criteria do list a, a series of of evaluations that, you know, and they use some soft language and say that you might want to consider given certain circumstances. And those include things like CBC or look for anemia, CRP or ESR, fecal calprotectin, and, you know, possibly doing breath tests, things like that. What I do in my practice is I do review the chart um, and hopefully see some labs that will help me exclude anemia. If they're not there, somebody's a, let's say they're a, a blank slate, they've not seen anybody for these symptoms, then I will typically get a CBC. I will typically check thyroids or at least a TSH. Um, if it's a more of a diarrheal component, and most of the workup, most of the laboratory workup when we do tests are for patients who have a diarrhea component, much, much less common to find organic disease in patients with IBS with constipation that clearly is constipation. Um, but, and that makes complete intuitive sense when you think about other mimickers that have symptoms similar to IBS, like celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease or even gastrointestinal infections. So I do a baseline workup that consists of a CBC, a, a, a CRP. Uh, I started getting some fecal calprotectins a while ago. I didn't think they were useful, so that's not really part of my routine workup. Uh, I do routinely check for celiac disease in appropriate patients, and I, I profile them for that. You know, the, the typical Caucasian patient, Northern European extraction, um, perhaps Middle Eastern, uh, something to think about with regards to, to a, a mimicker of IBS. And when I check for celiac, I get a TTG and a total IgA, and that's our preferred uh, evaluation of those patients. I don't do colonoscopy in everybody. Uh, and I think probably the most important thing to highlight is that you need to go through a, a list of alarm features. And they're very simple, and they're common sense. You ask patients if they're passing blood, if they're losing weight unintentionally, if they've got a family history of organic gastrointestinal diseases like celiac disease or colon cancer or inflammatory bowel disease. And if they don't, then you can be quite confident if they meet the Rome criteria that you're dealing with IBS. And I'm a, full, a big advocate of empiric treatment at that point. Um, it is not wrong to do diagnostic tests. Where we really see that getting uh, abused, though, is when we see the patient who has seen multiple other providers and they're coming in and they're looking for their third or fourth colonoscopy in two years. Um, that's getting a little bit ridiculous and it is, uh, you know, it's an abuse of the medical system and it leads to huge increased costs and, and, uh, possibly even, uh, adverse events. So right. that's where we need to use some rational sense. So before we, uh, jump to the, 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 the treatments that you'd recommend for IBS, what are some general recommendations that you'd make for IBS? Like for example, for example, diet exercise, and what is your stance on the FODMAP elimination diet? Yeah, great, great questions. And, you know, diet is a huge and very hot topic in IBS right now. Um, you know, I'm a big proponent of lifestyle modifications as an initial therapy. Now, when patients get to the subspecialty level or even the primary care level, 
I think it's important for us to ask what they've tried because you'll find that many patients have already tried the lifestyle modifications that you might recommend. So recommending them again, thinking that they're going to be more helpful, I think is a, is a bit uh, pie in the sky. So, um, you know, I assess whether patients have tried to, to modify their lifestyle. I do encourage them, especially if they have a, uh, IBS with constipation, to try and exercise. If they have IBS with diarrhea, exercise is not really all that helpful. There's not a lot of great evidence in the literature, but that doesn't mean it's not effective. And there's other benefits, of course, from exercise. Diet, I think, does play a major role in a lot of patients' IBS symptoms. Um, the FODMAP diet, which was really discovered, you know, developed in Australia, and that's where the bulk of the data comes from, clearly shows that when patients go on a FODMAP-restricted diet, that their IBS symptoms often will get better. And there now is some U.S. data from the University of Michigan. One of my mentors, Bill Shea, uh, did a very nice study with some of his colleagues that showed the same thing, essentially, in a U.S. population. The problem with FODMAP, especially in, when you live in L.A., lower Alabama, uh, is that you're not going to get patients to comply with that type of a diet. And I think that's really true throughout the United States and in most areas of the United States. You will get the occasional motivated patient who can do that. It's not meant to be a persistent diet. It's meant to be a temporary diet. You gradually reintroduce foods. And you really need a skilled dietitian to administer that type of diet. Um, the other aspect of diet that I think has gotten a bit hysterical is going gluten-free. Right. And I think that we need to broaden our minds with regards to this. Clearly, gluten can cause symptoms in patients, regardless of whether they have sprue or not. And we see patients who have what we call or have termed non-celiac gluten sensitivity I think it's actually a bit broader than that, and I like the term non-celiac wheat sensitivity. So these are patients who test negative for celiac disease, but they find that when they do consume wheat or grain products that they tend to have gastrointestinal symptoms. There's no test for it. It's completely based on history and N of one studies where you restrict it and patients get better, but I think that's a lot more prevalent. Uh, and the FODMAP really is, has that built into it. So, um, you know, I think diet can be very effective, but it needs to be something that is very carefully thought out, and you need a, a highly compliant, motivated patient to do that. Dr. Cash, what when you practically are going to try someone on a low-gluten diet or a FODMAP diet, are you always using a dietitian to, to help patients comply with that or to help initiate that? I am, uh, and I think the data would support that uh, when you talk to the experts. In these fields, they advocate that very strongly. The other part of that is, do you do you initiate this as part of lifestyle therapy before you're trying medications? I will if patients haven't tried it already. Um, and you know, when you do talk to patients, if they've tried it on their own, there is the question of how how uh, compliant they were, how complete they were. If they're if they are willing to do it, then uh, I certainly will do it before we try pharmaceuticals. Now, the practical issue also exists that many patients don't have coverage, and this is what I've learned since I've gotten out of the military and joined the real world, uh, <laughs> is it's very difficult for uh, patients to get coverage or they don't have coverage to go see a dietitian, and the charge can be, for some patients, significant. Uh, so it's an out-of-pocket cost that many of them don't really want to, don't really want to adhere to or, or sustain. So um, that makes it even more difficult. There is a very nice website, and, and I'll uh, 
put this just in the, I want to put this out there is that Bill Shea and his colleagues at the University of Michigan have developed um, that goes over the specifics of dietary therapy, especially the FODMAP diet. Um, so if you Google University of Michigan and my GI nutrition or something along those lines, I, I bet you can find it. It's a very nice website that's really directed to patients. We'll put that in the show note for listeners. I'll, I'll track that down. So talking about cost, I think it would be helpful for us to talk about the low-cost options and then before we move into the high-cost options. I know especially Paul is practicing in that kind of environment where he has to strongly consider cost. Yeah, so in terms of low-cost options, you're going you're gonna to break up uh, you know, your IBS patients into the three primary groups. Um, clearly, in my mind, the uh, two extremes are the easier to treat. You've got patients with IBS with diarrhea, and you've got patients with IBS with constipation. So for diarrhea, um, you know, the low-cost options include things like uh, Imodium or uh, Loperamide. And, uh, you know, there are other anti-diarrheal agents as well. Uh, there are over-the-counter antispasmodics now. Uh, the one that I really like and have gotten some very good results with is a peppermint oil preparation called IV Guard. Um, it's a medical food that should be administered under the, the auspices of a clinician, but uh, it is over-the-counter, and, and I found that that can be very helpful. Um, fiber for patients with IBS with constipation, although that can sometimes be a, a bit of an Achilles heel because that induces bloating. And we ask your patients with IBS whether they have bloating, about 70 to 80% of them are going to endorse that as a really common symptom. So it's actually not uncommon that I may take somebody off of their fiber. Um, but there are certainly uh, things like polyethylene glycol and osmotic laxatives that can help some patients with irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, although the data clearly shows that those agents don't help the abdominal pain. And in IBS patients, it's not only the dis dissatisfaction with defecation, it's the abdominal pain that's driving them to come see you. Uh, and a lot of those cheap, over-the-counter options don't address the abdominal pain to a significant degree. I think the peppermint oil does a fair job and, and can be quite effective for some patients, but you know, the laxatives and the antidiarrheals can sometimes even cause more pain, um, but they don't ease the pain in my experience. And that's, that's I think, supported by the, the lack of data for those agents. And then what role do like the TCAs or the SSRIs, I was kind of surprised at how sort of readily they were offered as a potential treatment. Um, in the absence of, of sort of any psychiatric comorbidities, uh, how, what kind of role do those have in your general treatment of IBS? Yeah, so the, the TCAs and SSRIs are very commonly used. Uh, I tend not to use them. They're a, they're a lower uh, tier in my armamentarium. I tend to use those when other things don't work. Um, but there is data to support their use. Now, when you actually look at the, at the trials and the meta-analyses, and systematic reviews of these agents, you know, there are multiple very small trials with very diverse endpoints, uh, very diverse agents and, and doses as well. Typically, we recommend using very low doses of TCAs, primarily for pain. Uh, they don't really have significant adverse effects on constipation. So I'll use them in patients with IBS with diarrhea, and I'll also use them in patients with constipation when I'm targeting pain. And typically, um, I use uh, dizipramine. Uh, other people will use other TCAs, but 
Um, I like to zipramine about 25 milligrams as a starting dose, and I may go up to 50, but I rarely go beyond that. The best data actually supports doses of about 150 to 200, but that's about 50% or more of patients will get adverse events that sure. they make that, that therapy intolerable. SSRIs, I don't really use a lot of. Uh, they tend to be a bit more agitating and exacerbate diarrhea. So if I do use an SSRI, it's usually in conjunction with trying to treat somebody's anxiety. When I walk out of the exam room and I'm anxious and shaky uh, and feel like <laughs> I've had three cups of coffee, that's somebody who may need it and may benefit from a TC or from an SSRI. Um, but I don't use those a lot. I don't, I have not found them to be as effective in my clinical practice as the literature would actually suggest. Sir, there was a, this ST5, STW5, uh, it, I found it in a, a review article in the British Medical Journal from last year, uh, 2015, actually. It's also called mm. Iberogast or Iberogast. Yeah. I, I can't pronounce yeah. it. It, that one says it's been around for like five decades. It's pretty safe. It has some efficacy. Any experience using that? I have tried that a couple of times, but I've primarily tried it in patients with functional dyspepsia, which is the, the upper GI analog of, of IBS. And I've not really had tremendous benefits with it. Um, so I haven't used it in several years. Okay. Uh, anything else other than peppermint oil that you found benefit from? I know certain types of patients just seem to love if you can rep recommend something that's more of an herbal or a non-pharmacologic agent. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in probiotics and even prebiotics. Uh, I personally don't think the data stands up to really support that. Now, if patients come in and tell me that they're on a probiotic and they feel, I just simply ask them if they feel like it's helping them and if they say yes, I don't dissuade them from taking uh, those agents. I don't try and change that if they feel like they're benefiting from it. And I kind of take the same approach with the other antispasmodics that are prescription like uh, dicyclamine or um, hyoscyamine. I don't use those a lot in my clinical practice, but those are probably the most widely used therapies for IBS. If somebody thinks they're benefiting from it, as long as they're not taking significant amounts and having adverse events, I'm, I'm okay with them taking that. But I don't typically use those in my practice, um, but uh, certainly wouldn't fault anybody for doing that. But that's really about it. And it just you mentioned the the antispasmodics. I find um, I find a lot of side effects, like you were saying. And if I'm not mistaken, it's mostly anticholinergic type side effects. Some patients get, I think, can get some um, hypotension with them or orthostatic hypotension. Um, anything else that pe people should look out for when patients are taking those? Yeah, it's it's dry eyes, dry mouth, increasing constipation, dizziness, lightheadedness, sleep disturbances. Um, whether it's being too sleepy or not sleeping well enough. So um, those are the primary, the primary adverse events. And usually you're going to see those in, in super therapeutic doses. Um, and, you know, and there are some patients who do derive some benefit from on-demand therapy with these agents. But, uh, you know, I, I think they may be worth a try, but there really is a very scant evidence base with regards to, to their efficacy. So on the flip side, if you have a Cadillac insurance plan and unlimited resources, what would you recommend? Well, again, you know, you're going to treat your, your primaries, and we have FDA-approved therapies for the, the two extremes, so IBSD and, and IBSC. So for IBSD, uh, I like 
both of the FDA-approved therapies that are available, and that is includes uh, rifaximin, and the other one is eluxadiline. And both these agents were approved on the same day uh, in, uh, I believe it was 2015. Um, the eluxadiline became available uh, not all that long ago. It's like rifaximin we've been using for many years for uh, IBS with diarrhea and bloating. And I think both of those therapies can be quite effective in patients with IBSD in terms of easing not only the defecatory abnormalities, but also the abdominal discomfort. When I try to differentiate, because one of the common questions is, that I'll get from my trainees is, well, which one do you use when? You know, I target a couple of key symptoms when I use uh, rifaximin. And one of those key symptoms I alluded to, and that was bloating. Uh, you know, there's there's abundant data that shows that rifaximin can help bloating. Um, so if a patient tell, I basically ask patients to tell me their top three symptoms or to list their top three symptoms. If bloating is in that group, then I will typically use a two-week course of rifaximin at a dose of 550 milligrams three times a day. Some people, some clinicians will do breath tests and use that to guide their use of, of uh, rifaximin, but I think it's important for us to remember that not approved for bacterial overgrowth or dysbiosis. It's approved for irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. So if you've documented that, you've made a confident diagnosis, and it's covered by a patient's uh, insurance company, then you know you should use that. I think if you feel like uh, like that's going to help your patients, and that those are my target symptoms. Now, with regards to luxadiline, I typically will target the patients who complain more about pain and more about uh, fecal urgency. Perhaps they've had some some urge incontinence, um, you know, and they have that that sense of impending doom and that loss of control. And I found that that really helps those symptoms. So I think there's some complementary use that you can get with both of these agents, and I've had great success with both of them. And for how long would you treat someone, say, with rifaximin? So rifaximin is meant to be a two-week treatment and then up to, according to the label, two additional therapies. Now you will see about you'll see about a in my practice it's probably about a sixty percent response rate. Sometimes not every single symptom gets better, um, but uh, you know sometimes you'll hit a home run and patients will come in saying they feel completely normal. About a third of those patients you never see again. They don't come back. They don't get recurrent symptoms, to the best of our knowledge. About two thirds of those patients will come back over a variable period of time. Sometimes it's two weeks later. Sometimes it's six months later with recurring symptoms. And then I typically will treat them again. Now, the problem that I find with these patients is those, I call them rapid recurs or rapid relapsers where they have a very nice response, but they come back within a month saying that they've got recurrent symptoms. Those patients are much more difficult to treat because you don't want to have them on a rotating course of antibiotics, even a poorly absorbed antibiotic. And it's very expensive and it's probably not going to be approved. So then you have to start thinking outside the box, either using other agents. Um, and I've done some off-label things with, with that agent and had some good success as well. Now, is this because of SIBO and dietary noncompliance and they're just repopulating the, the bad flora? Well, there's a lot of debate. Um, you know, we've, we kind of jumped on that, kind of like the celiac bandwagon. We jumped on the SIBO bandwagon, the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth <laughs> bandwagon a few years ago. And I'm not so sure that it's absolutely SIBO. It's a, that's kind of a difficult term to even characterize. And 
and our diagnostic tests are lousy for that. Um, so I tend to use the term dysbiosis, but it's kind of the same thing. It's disordered small intestinal bacteria. I think it's really more at heart a motility abnormality. And the way I explain it to patients is, you know, you've got a down escalator in your GI tract, and for some reason your down escalator is kind of broken. So it allows the, the obnoxious kids to run up the down escalator backwards and <laughs> cause all kinds of problems. And they kind of get that story. And I think they do repopulate, uh, and the ones with more disordered motility repopulate faster. That's my theory. I don't have any great proof for that, but I think that's why we do see some uh, kind of a spectrum where the patients who don't have such a prominent motility abnormality tend to have a nice, more prolonged response, whereas I think those with a, with a more important or more impactful motility abnormality tend to repopulate more quickly and get recurrent symptoms. Dr. Cash, I feel like that touches on a question I sort of had while sort of going through this stuff is it doesn't seem just in terms of potential pathophysiology sort of causing this, you know, there's, it's attributed to sort of a central pathology or something peripheral, or maybe a serotonergic or early, you know, stress and ACE related or versus, you know, dysbiosis you mentioned. Um, Is there, are we sort of approaching consensus on what the primary driver is, or is it possible that we're looking at sort of a broader term for a bunch of different types of pathology? I think you hit it right on the head, and that's kind of that's one of the flags that I'm trying to carry up the hill. And that is that you know for so long we 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 kind of think of or conceptualize IBS as a single disorder or as a disease state. And I'm not going to debate whether or not it's a disease, but you know it clearly is not a, a it doesn't have a single cause. It is a heterogeneous condition, very similar symptoms in these patients, but a bunch of different causes. You know because you wouldn't see responses to such diverse therapies as exercise or dietary therapy or probiotics or antibiotics or um, motility agents, uh, you know, or, or opioid modulators like eluxatiline in patients who all had the same cause. And we find different diagnostic markers in some patients, and some patients find no diagnostic markers. Um, so I think it is clearly a condition. It's a syndrome of symptoms, all very similar with a wide variety of different causes. Um, and, you know, we're getting better about characterizing some of these causes with regards to the dietary intolerances, uh, post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome, psychologically mediated symptoms. Uh, but uh, it is still, for many patients, very difficult to, uh, not to crack in terms of what's driving their symptoms. So we, we're kind of like the, the cavemen and uh, in a space odyssey where we're beating the thing with the, with the femur <laughs> bone and we're using these, these, you know, kind of broad based therapies, but that's the best we can do right now until we get something that's a little bit more lock and key. But we're not, I don't think we're ever going to have a single silver bullet for this condition because it is got a heterogeneous group of causes. That's, that's really at its heart. We talked, I think for IBSC, you mentioned just fiber, but yeah, what else, what else would you recommend for IBSC? So, so for IBSC, you know, you've got addition, you have two uh, FDA-approved therapies, and that's lubiprostone and linaclotide. Those agents work very similarly, and bottom line is that they bring fluid into the GI tract. They do work differently in terms of their mechanisms of action, um, and I think both of those agents, similar to the IBSD therapies, um, have a great evidence base, and I've seen some very dramatic, very uh, good results with both of those therapies. I tend to use lubiprostone in patients who I perceive have 
less severe symptoms because I can titrate it a bit more and fine tune it a bit more because it's got a pretty wide variety of doses that I can use. Uh, whereas with the linacotide, that ten, I tend to use that in patients who are complaining of more severe constipation symptoms. And I, I, uh, my perception is that it has a bit more of a laxative effect. Um, but both those agents are, are, I think, very good. The only uh, other thing that I might, I do want to mention with regards to IBS with diarrhea, jump back to that, is there's a big move afoot now to be thinking about bile acid malabsorption. And many of us are using those, using bile acid sequestrants in those patients. Of course, you've got to be careful with other therapies and make sure that you're administering that at the right time. Unclear whether that has any significant effect on abdominal pain. Um, but that's another thing that's coming down the pike. I think we're going to see some more research, uh, you know, in the next couple of years about that, maybe some actual diagnostic tests that we can use to help diagnose those patients too. The, the bio, the bio acid sequestrants, can you just go a little bit into the specifics of the timing of those with relation to other Sure. Foods? Yeah. Uh, I usually use the pill form as opposed to the powdered form because it's much more pleasant to take, you know, anywhere from. Uh, typically one to four grams of, uh, of therapy. And then you want to separate it by at least two hours. I typically will try to get patients to take it in the middle of the day. If they, if they have a morning or evening dosing regimen of other therapies, I'll try and get them to take it in the middle of the day. It's not always that easy, but you know, it really needs to be separated from other medications by at least two hours to make sure that you're not binding up those other medications and and decreasing their their uh, exposure to those medicines that they're already on that they may need antihypertensives or or what have you. So um, make sure patients are are separating those doses. And the pathophysiology of how those are working in the in the gut. Can you refresh us on those on that? Yeah. So so bile acids. Uh, you know, it's been estimated by some folks, uh, especially from Mayo Clinic, that up to fifteen to twenty percent of patients with IBS with diarrhea may have evidence of when they test them with their proprietary test, evidence of, of bile acid malabsorption. Bile acids uh, are basically work as, as uh, soaps and they have a high osmotic load. So they keep fluid into the, in the gut. They uh, also are a bit irritating. So the thought is that they can actually increase motility and patients will end up with more frequent, looser stools. We see this very commonly in patients soon after cholecystectomy. That's the typical post-cholecystectomy diarrhea that often will gradually go away as, uh, as their bile acid recirculation starts to normalize and the, the colon starts to subsume some of that activity as well. Um, but there are some patients who have some inherent defects of of their uh, processing, their bile acid um, absorber processing uh, enzymes that have malabsorption. And we believe that that's the cause of some patients with IBS with diarrhea. But until we get a widely available diagnostic test, which we don't have in the U.S. right now, we're not going to know what that, what that numerator is uh, over that denominator. But we may find it's 15 or 20%. We may find it's 3%. Um, but uh, right now, in patients who are not responding to some of the other IBSD therapies, or perhaps they don't have access to it or can't afford them, this is a, a bit of a cheaper alternative for some patients as well. Well, thank you. Any other therapies you wanted to highlight before we, before we let you go? 
Uh, no, but there are some there are some very interesting and exciting things coming down the pike uh, in the next couple of years. I think we're going to see a couple of new therapies uh, that are approved. One's going to be uh, an agent called placanotide, and then there's another agent that uh, is looking at the sodium hydrogen exchanger. So that is another therapy that we may uh, we may see for our IBS patients coming down the next couple of years. So it's an exciting time to to be in IBS and to be in functional GI disorders. Uh, to kind of tie it all together here, if uh, and, and kind of give us a, the take-home points, if you when you see a patient in your clinic that you think might have IBS, can you give us kind of the maybe two or three things that we should be thinking and how we should approach it so that we can do this confidently from now on? Sure. So you, you see a patient to... Who comes in? I think the I think it's good to apply, learn the the Rome criteria. They're very simple. Uh, apply those, rule out alarm features. If somebody has alarm features or has even one alarm feature, I think you're obligated to to do a deeper dive in terms of uh, other possible etiologies and keep a broad open mind with regards to those etiologies. But if somebody doesn't have those alarm features and they do meet the criteria, I think it's absolutely appropriate to embark on uh, empiric therapy, what that therapy consists of, I think is up to the clinician and the patient. Um, the evidence would support the therapies that are FDA approved. That doesn't mean that the, you know, more holistic or patient, uh, oriented therapies like lifestyle modifications are inappropriate. And I think those are great first line therapies when those fail. I think the appropriate thing to do is to use, um, the more rigorously studied, FDA-approved therapies, uh, and when that fails, uh, as it will in, in a subset of patients, I think it's not inappropriate to call in other uh, colleagues, perhaps psychological therapy with cognitive behavioral therapy or meditation therapies, uh, and or send those patients from a primary care setting up to a higher echelon of care in terms of subspecialty, uh, and you know those patients are probably going to get a bit more of a diagnostic evaluation, but there may be some additional resources that can be uh, brought to bear for those patients as well. Well, thank you. I, I, I definitely think uh, there's been a lot of questions here answered for me. I can't wait to try peppermint, peppermint oil on my next patient that has <laughs> IBS because uh, that is not something I've been doing, but I love, uh, I love trying those things out. And a lot of the times, maybe I just have weird patients, but they, uh, they love that too. I'm just going to use Rifaximin. <laughs> I actually, I looked up Rifaximin while we were talking here on GoodRx.com. So for 60... Five, I don't want to know this. For 60 550 milligram tablets, uh, Kroger Pharmacy is offering $1,988. That's not bad. Uh, CVS oh is offering uh, $1,993. No, so, that's too much. Yeah. Oh, so great. about about $2,000. And uh, Now, is that with or without the card, man? <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure there would be some cost sharing with the insurance or I guess. And then Viberzi, which was the U I can't even pronounce that. Uh I the Ula Uluxadoline. How do you say that? Uluxadoline. Uluxadoline. Yeah. I'll cut out me failing to say Eluxadaline. that. Uluxadoline. Uh, <laughs> Please don't. That was masterful. Uluxadoline, uh which is a Viberzi, it says $1000. I'm not yeah. sure why that one's cheaper. And then the E&M to go see the physician, about 150. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, in real life, you know, when when we see our insured patients, they're not paying that. But you know, you're right. It's that's a huge issue. And um, you know, we have we get a lot of we get a lot of uh 
dialogue with our patients with regards to those. And that limits your therapy. So I think that that highlights the fact that you need to know some of, some of these alternative techniques as well because uh, the cost can be prohibitive for some patients. Did you happen to look up peppermint oil? I didn't. I didn't look up the cost of peppermint okay, oil. I got it. How Amazon.com, much? Amazon.com, eleven ninety-five. There we go. That's for four <laughs> ounces. All right, I'll buy you some, Stuart. There I've noticed uh, you. <laughs> I've noticed right. you've had some problems. Yeah, lately, in the so. tea clinic, had to run away <laughs> several times. <laughs> okay, Doctor Cash, uh, I will let you know when this is going to appear out there uh, in the podcast world. It's been a pleasure talking to you. If it's okay with you, I will uh, I will reach out to you in the future if we have any other topics because, I mean, looking at your CV, I can tell there's a number of other things you could probably speak to as an expert. And uh, we plan on doing the show for, you know, indefinitely going forward. That's great. No, it's a pleasure. I'll try not to be as loquacious as I was, but I, once you get me going, I get excited and certainly can't stop. <laughs> but the uh, only other plug I'm going to put out there for your audience, yeah. Uh, don't forget March. March is Colon Cancer Screening Awareness Month. That's a that's a, that's an important month for us. So uh, get your patients screened. All right, you take care. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders. That's correct. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. My brain hole. <laughs> You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Did we mention any websites this time? Uh, yeah. I believe you mentioned a University of Michigan website. And we are committed to providing you, the listener, with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Or you can send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you what you love or hate about the show or just recommend a topic for a future show. And lastly, you can contact us on our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Otto. What's your middle name? Frank. Hi, Frank. How you doing? (laughs) (laughs) And I've been Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. I'm happy about my middle name. Yeah, and this remains Paul Nelson Williams. (laughs) Hi, Nelson. (laughs) Uh, Good night.